What service have you seen? Forty-one. A month's lesser day in this ship. You keep an exact account. And before? Three years in other ships. Three years. You have the spirit to fight back, but the good sense to control it. Your eyes are full of hate, 41. That's good. Hate keeps a man alive. It gives him strength. Now listen to me, all of you. You are all condemned men. We keep you alive to serve this ship. So row well and live. Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made or the Essential Films. I'm Adolfo Costa, and I am joined, as always, by a man who will resort to putting blades on his chariot just to win a race, Mr. Mark Espinoza. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I don't know if I will be consider myself that evil, but... I guess I guess you could pull me up there. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, this is episode number twenty-seven, where we will be discussing the uh, the big epic movie that is uh, Ben Hur, the movie that took the world by storm in nineteen fifty-nine. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, how you been doing? Uh, pretty good. Uh, can't complain. Uh, for those of you who want a little bit of backstage news, we're actually recording this on Thanksgiving Eve, uh, so I am ready uh, for Turkey Day tomorrow. Uh, we're actually heading to uh, one of my sister's friend's houses uh, with her with that guy's family for dinner. Um, actually, to be full disclosure, actually my sister's boyfriend's family because um, they're actually uh, selling the house soon, so it'll be the last Thanksgiving uh, anybody spends there. So it's going to be a bittersweet moment for us, but we're going to have fun. We're going to have some turkey. We're going to have some uh, um, sauce that they call gravy. It, it, we're going to have that debate again that we had a few years ago where because they're Italian, they call like marinara sauce. They call it gravy when I'm like, no, it's sauce. They're like, no, we call it gravy. Well, it's, to me, it's sauce. And then we go back and forth for like five minutes. <laughs> looking forward to that again. Um, but I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving. You know, it's one of my uh, – one of the days I always peg on the year as a day where I can kind of just gorge myself and not worry about putting on a couple of pounds because it is the holidays now, officially tomorrow. Um, but what's good on your end, Adolfo? Uh, not, not not too much. Um, it, you know, as I said, it's Thanksgiving. I've got to pulled out the elastic waistband pants uh, for tomorrow, you know, so we can get some nice gorge ourselves, as you said, and, and not feel too bad about it. Um, I do all the cooking in my house, so I'm uh, I'm pretty going to get up not super early because we're going to eat a little later in the day. Turkey takes about five hours, so probably going to put the, put the turkey in the oven around 11. So, uh, But, you know, going to probably get up a little 
lack of you know little lazy lazy Thursday morning and then get right into cooking. So uh, yeah, gonna be I'm pretty excited about it. Thanksgiving has actually turned into one of my favorite holidays. I used to kind of just be like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But ever ever since I you know got married and started a family, it kind of became one of my favorites. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just the the maybe it's because it's it's like the official start of the holidays, or maybe it's because uh, you know you have family over. I don't know. I just kind of like the. I like the tradition of Thanksgiving. Not not so much the the beginnings of it with the Native Americans and how they were slaughtered, but you know, <laughs> but you know what it means now in in, in right. the modern context. Um, yeah, and yeah, but- uh, it, it's it's funny because um, my uh, I was actually supposed to go tomorrow to me living in the NYNJ area. I was supposed to go to the parade tomorrow uh, in New York, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. However, we are supposed to be uh, getting single digit cold. In the morning, I think it's already starting right now overnight. So oh, those plans have been nixed <laughs> <laughs> officially, um, but maybe next year. No, no, screw that. Uh, I'm having flashbacks to our Miracle on 34th Street uh, episode of Man, they're going to do something to keep uh, warm outside. Uh, All right. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, speaking of movies, do you have any Thanksgiving movie traditions? Uh, with me, it's not so much Thanksgiving movies, although it's funny when well, we're going to get to Alamo in a little bit, like we always do on this show. Um, they actually showed a uh, planes, trains and automobiles tonight, which I did not attend. Um, it was one of the ones that I kind of tried to go to, but in the end it just didn't work out. Um, I know that's always a popular film to watch around Thanksgiving, but for me, I just kind of go back to old shows. Like I watched old Simpsons Thanksgiving episodes or I watched the Friends Thanksgiving episodes or the Everybody Loves Raymond one that I love so much with the tofu turkey. It's one of my favorite uh, episodes of any TV show ever. Uh, it's always a Thanksgiving tradition for me. Deborah. So for me, it's more sitcoms. I had to do the Deborah as soon as you said everyone loves Raymond. So, <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, sitcoms. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a traditionalist. It's, it's plain trains and automobiles for me every year. Uh, I'm gonna put it on um, while I'm cooking tomorrow. Just put it on the, uh, the laptop and have it go on while I'm cooking tomorrow. So that, that's my, that's my go-to. It's cliched, but I mean, it's, it's cliched for a reason. It's perfect Thanksgiving film for me. Oh, definitely, definitely. It's, uh, I can definitely see why that's a uh, tradition for everybody. And I, and I really did try to go to that screen today, but again, it just, and that was off too, but. Just too much stuff to get ready for for tomorrow, and it, it just it wasn't in the cards. But maybe next time. All right, so uh, let's let's go ahead and get into uh, the movie we're here to talk about today, uh, Ben Hur, um, the epic Ben Hur. Uh, you know, as we usually do, we like to talk about how we first discovered these films and how how did you first come across Ben Hur? Um. It's a little hard to talk about because I can't give you a straight answer for this one because I don't remember. <laughs> it's one of those movies that uh, I think has always been a part of my life in one way or another because I remember my 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 mother telling me all the time that my grandfather loved movies like this. He loved Ben-Hur. He loved The Robe. He loved The Ten Commandments. He loved Fall of the Roman Empire. He loved all these swords and sandals flicks. It was, you know, that was his genre. He liked westerns. He liked like the uh, the ancient Roman films, all that stuff. Like that was that was his thing. Uh, and he kind of passed that on to my mother, who passed that on to me. Uh, and I remember just kind of going through my childhood and seeing bits and pieces, like remembering seeing bits and pieces of Ben Hur, but never sitting down and watching it start to finish. I don't think I ever really did that until maybe. 
when I was in college, which with a lot of these movies that we talk about, that's usually the case because, like I always mention, college is when I really got into my uh, uh, film criticism and my and my cinephileness kind of sprung like a phoenix at that point. So I remember having to watch Ben Hur for a film class, and I that may have been the first time that I actually sat down and watched it start to finish. I remember um, I had to get it from. Was it from Netflix? I think I borrowed it. No, no. It was from – no, it was from Netflix because I actually asked my mother because this was at the time when Netflix was just DVDs. Uh, I had to actually ask my mother if she can get me the Ben-Hur um, discs because I needed it for a class. So she did. So I remember sitting in a library in, in college over lunch. I sat there for a good like four hours. And I popped in both discs of Ben Hur. Hell of a lunch, down, dude! Four hour lunch. And I slowly sat down and watched it from start to finish in the library on that day because I think I had like a, just a morning class and I was done for the day. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna just instead of going home and just passing out, I'm just gonna sit down and actually just get this over with. So I got a. Uh, I ordered some snacks. I got my lunch. Sat down in the lunchroom in the cafeteria. Popped in the DVD and I kind of strapped myself in for this for four hours. Uh, so that was the first time I remember just watching it from start to finish, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that this movie's been, like I said, a part of my life for longer than I care to imagine. Like my mother always used to watch it around Easter time. That's when they used to show it on TV, whether it was cha- uh, channel seven around here, which is ABC or these other channels, like would show, you know, the, uh, uh, the quote unquote Easter movies, uh, around that time, like the 10 commandments, Ben Hur, all those movies. They always used to show Ben Hur around Christmas time as well. And, uh. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've I've always seen bits and pieces of it, you know, as growing up, but I never really sat down and watched it until I got to college and it was assigned to me for a film class. And that was that. That was the first time I saw it. And just immediately I, and, and, and it was one of those things where, like, you finally get to see it and you just sit down and just start appreciating everything. Now that you have this, you know, you're older, you're a little wiser, you kind of appreciate little nuances now. Um, when it comes to like how something was shot or how something was made. And, you know, I, I consider that, you know, such a fulfilling experience for me because like we always say on this on the show, you you never get the first time back. You know, you always remember the first time you ever saw something. And the first time I ever saw Ben Hur start to finish, uh, I got to point out a lot of the nuances to myself. I, I got to really appreciate just the grandeur and the, and the beauty of just the sets, everything that went into that. The acting, you know, Stephen Boyd is such a great heel in this movie. Charlton Heston, the white meat baby face, the hero of the of the story. Uh, and you just kind of got to sit there and just let everything sink in and just appreciate it. And that's something that I'll never have again with this movie. Yeah, I, I think you and I are pretty much parallel on this. Uh, I, I remember it being on TV when I was a younger like you said around easter and christmas and we'll get to why that is in 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 a little bit but um around easter and christmas i remember it being on tv never really watched it until i got to college whenever it was a movie i had to watch for college so i mean you and i are kind of on the same boat here so i didn't watch it until college in its full kind of spectacle um i remember seeing it like on tv in bits and pieces like here and there and you know, not really, you know, as an eight-year-old, not really being super interested in it, but uh, finally getting around to seeing it in college. And yeah, I think that we're both kind of on the same page here. Um, and then it wasn't until, um, and I remember like watching it in college, 
But because it was so long and, you know, you're in college and you've got other things going on. And I remember not fully taking it in. Um, and I, it took me like a couple years to like kind of rent to like rent it from Netflix again to rewatch it when I finally did actually appreciate it. So like I, I kind of, I got like the first time I watched it in full in college was like, okay, I have to watch this for a class. I'm just getting, I'm here to like get the story down and that's not really pay attention to the details or like appreciate it. But the second time after college, when I actually sat down to watch it was when I actually started to appreciate everything, uh, everything about it. And actually on this most recent viewing for this episode, um, I think it's probably when like a lot more stuff kind of seeped in, like, even though I'd seen it before, it, it is, I, I feel like I really appreciate it a lot more, um, uh, this time around than I did before. Right. Uh, so let's get into kind of the stats here. This is one of the biggest movies ever made. Uh, it was directed by William Wyler. Uh, with a screenplay by Carl Tunberg, uh, based on Ben Hur, A Tale of the Christ by Lou Wallace, uh, starring General Lou Wallace. General Lou Wallace, yes, a Union general, uh, starring Charlton Heston, of course, Jack Hawkins, Haya Hararit, uh, Stephen Boyd, Hugh Griffith, Martha Scott, Kathy O'Donnell, and Sam Jaffe, and many others, uh, with music, epic music by uh, Miklos Roshka. I think I said that right. Uh, and it was released uh, November 18th, 1959. So actually, we just passed its, what, 59th anniversary? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. next year, 60. So I was going to mention 60, that later. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, we just passed that. So, um, yeah, so let, let's kind of get into some of some of this. As we mentioned, uh, it, it is a re- it was a, based on the book um, Ben-Hur, Tale of the Christ, but it's also a remake of a 1925 film that... Uh, Weiler actually also worked on. I think he was like a second unit director or something like that. Or he worked with like um, like the te- the early Technicolor process on that movie. But uh, he he actually did kind of work on the original one. Have you ever seen the original one? Um, I didn't realize that the original one was actually in my 50th anniversary set until this recent screening that I did for myself. Mm-hmm. So I watched the first five minutes of it and then. I was like, is this the full movie? And then when I put it, I was like, holy crap, it's the full movie. So I watched five minutes because I didn't have time to watch the rest of it. So I watched the first five minutes and I had to unfortunately turn it off. But I'm going to go back to that because I, I actually I, – A, I didn't know I had it. And number two, I've always wanted to see it. So I will go back to it and watch it. Uh, it's pretty good. I've watched it before um, and it's it's pretty good. I, I think this version is better. Um, but whenever you take into account you know, the, the time period that it was made in, it was made almost 100 years ago, it is very impressive to look at. Um, it is not as long, but it's still on the long side for a for a silent film. I think it's it's like two and a half hours or something like that. So it's a little long for a silent film because uh, sometimes you know, if you're watching a silent film and it, it gets into those kind of epic lengths, they can they can get a little you know <laughs> you can get a little drowsy watching them. At least right. for me, you know. But uh, it, it is a very good, especially the chariot racing. It follows mostly. If I remember correctly, it follows pretty much the same story. I don't think there's any big deviations um, from what I can think of. I think most of the same stuff, the most of the highlights of this one is is in the same is in the 1925 version. But it's not bad, um, and I and I check it out whenever you had a chance. And I'm glad you mentioned that uh, 50th anniversary set because we're gonna be talking about that a little later. Um, but yeah, um, so it was a remake of that film that uh, William Wyler also worked on, uh, and you know, in the th- 
you know, 30 years later, they decided to make a, a remake. Um, MGM decided to make a remake. Uh, it got kind of stalled in production a couple of times before they finally kind of went through with it in, in uh, 1958. Um, do you know who one of the original, uh, the original person who was supposed to be cast as Ben-Hur was? Well, they did. They, I, from what I understand, they approached a few people. Well, um, but, but the big one was was Brando, I think. Marlon Brando. They Whenever they were supposed to film it in 1956, it was supposed to be Marlon Brando uh, as the lead, which I can't even imagine how he would do this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where, like, you know, Heston is Ben Hur. Like, you can't now you can't picture anybody else in, in that role anymore. I know. Um, I think they wanted Rock Hudson also. Uh, Kirk Douglas was a uh, Leslie Nielsen. I heard was up for it too. Yeah, I got the, the let's see here. Uh the list I have here is yeah, you said Marlon Brando, Rock Hudson, Burt Lancaster, Paul Newman, uh Jeffrey Horn, and Leslie Nielsen. Um they all turned it down. Kirk Douglas wanted it, but then it but then they turned but they turned him down for Heston. So in response he made Spartacus. He made Spartacus, kind of like that right. like that'll show them type of thing you know which is kind of weird because um this is kind of william wyler's that'll show him to demille for the ten commandments so right yeah it's kind of funny how that, that. How, how that works also starring charlton heston yes there you go. <laughs> um and and uh yeah so he um he basically took wyler took on this film you know i'm glad you mentioned that because he he wanted to make uh what he called a, a thinking man's biblical epic you got to remember in the 50s biblical epics were like a huge genre you yeah, mentioned it's, you, it's like comic book movies now yeah like you mentioned it earlier with the ten commandments you mentioned i think you mentioned the robe you mentioned um what else is there um it's fall of the roman empire yeah there was Kuo Vadis. um oh there's another one uh uh the greatest story ever told but yeah. i think that was like maybe 1960 or something but it was still kind of in the same era but yeah right. that was that was a big era for biblical epics um, but, uh, this by far is probably the, the biggest one ever. Uh, and I'm all actually, I'm not sure. I think it's pretty sure it beat 10 commandments. Um, but, uh, Weiler, uh, joked that he, uh, that he took a Jew to make a good film about Jesus, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is funny, which, which, you know, it's funny. Cause I, every, every time I watch this movie, I kind of forget that, that Jesus is in it. You know what I mean? Because it, it, so much of it is about Judah Ben Hur that uh, that I always, even though it's in the title of the original movie, A Tale of the Christ, um, I just sometimes just forget that that it's it's you know takes place around uh, you know the time that Jesus was alive and you know was you know becoming the 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 prophet and the Messiah and things like that. But uh, yeah, every time I watch it, it like it always kind of takes me for a, a like. I'm like, oh, right, yeah, Jesus is in this. Well, that's good because you're so invested in Judah's story that you forget, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is in this too. Even though you don't <laughs> see him, they would, like never show his face. Yeah, out of out of reverence to Jesus, they uh, they didn't show his face. That was I looked that up too recently because I was kind of like, why wouldn't they just show his face? You know, it was, it was kind of weird to me. Yeah, did you but get that? Did you get it was a, out of respect? Yeah. Is it? I mean, is that really the the issue? Because there, I feel like there were other movies about Jesus where they showed Jesus's face. So I don't understand. Well, maybe, well, I think the difference is that in those movies, Jesus was the main character, like King of Kings and Greatest Story Ever Told. I guess here because he's—I don't want to say he's a side character, but essentially that's what he is. He's kind of like more of a side slash background character, you know. Like you know, Jesus' story is unfolding in the background to Judah's main story, you know, his storyline A. 
So I guess, you know, just out of respect, you know, for Jesus, he just didn't show us face. It was their way of showing reverence, I guess. I don't know. And and this is the reason why when you watch the beginning of the film, the MGM lion doesn't roar because they go right from that into the nativity scene. That's right. Which is why they didn't – they thought it would strike the wrong chord, which – I don't know. I, I feel like it would have been okay. Like when I watched it, I was like, "Hey, the lion didn't roar. What the hell?" Um, I was annoyed by that. Um, but yeah, so Ben Hur uh, at the time, the biggest, uh, the largest budget of any movie ever, fifteen point one seven five million, which uh, I, I looked up apparently is roughly about one hundred and thirty million dollars uh, for a budget, which nowadays is still pretty big. But I mean. They, I mean, Marvel movies out do that all the time now, you know. Yeah. So, um, but for for back then, that was that was the biggest biggest production ever. And um, as they, they built the largest sets, I think the um, the uh, the arena with the chariot races is one of the largest sets ever built. Um, so, and, and of any film like produced ever, pretty much. So, uh, they they spent their money well. Uh, I think. Of that fifteen million, two million of it went just to the Terriot race. So that's uh, and it pretty much you can see that on the screen. The money is spent on that screen. Yeah, and and that two hundred mil or whatever it was, um, but that you said that went into the building and the deconstruction of that set because. MGM did not want anybody else stealing their sets. So, and, and like we said, you know. Sword and sandals flicks are, are are in right now, so everybody, every other studio is making them at this point. So MGM's like, no, no, you're not going to leech off our sets. So they built it, and then they spend like more money to actually tear the damn thing down because, like you said, this uh, this arena uh, at the time was the largest set ever built, and they were like, oh, we'll be damned if anybody gets to steal this on our dime. So. They built it and they tore that thing down. <laughs> they should have just charged, or rented it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, maybe because it wasn't. I mean, because it wasn't built in the U.S. It was. In, I think they were in Italy. In Italy, uh, that's right. So maybe that's why they couldn't charge for it. But like, I feel like if I spent that much money on something that huge, I would just be like, yeah, let's get some of our money back. Anytime you want to do a, a, a sword and sandal picture, you gotta pay. You gotta pay us for it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, the other kind of fact about this: uh, ten thousand extras were used on this film. So I mean, it's one of those movies that could literally boast a cast of thousands and not be exaggerating. Yes, yes, because I, I I was I was watching this, especially that chariot race scene. Not so much the race at this point. I'm pointing attention to the spectators, and it, and I'm just kind of in amazement because that's not CGI. Like today, that would all be CGI people in the stand. No, those are all real people, and that kind of just blew my mind, you know, considering, you know, how far we've come since then. Like, back then, you had to have real people there, whereas now, like, you could have maybe, like, what, maybe a handful, maybe a hundred people, just for the close-up shots, and everything else could just be CGI. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing sequence, and, and it's absolutely beautiful to look at. I kind of want to get into more facts about it when we actually discuss the... Uh, discuss the chariot race scene but um any any other background stuff you want to talk about before we get into the the film itself um not really i do want to talk about real quick though as far as um masala our boy uh stephen boyd um let's uh, i'll pose the question to you rhetorically because i'm sure you know the answer um who was up for masala before stephen boyd <laughs> oh you know what i had this in my notes and i don't can't find it anymore i know who you're talking about uh, I'm gonna kick myself as soon as you say it. Who was it? 
It was Heston. Yeah, that's right. It was Heston. He wanted Heston right. as, as the right. Sala first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would have been odd. Which would have been interesting. I don't know. Because I don't feel like Heston... I don't look at Heston as a villain. Like, anytime I see him in anything, he's always the hero. Can I, I can't think of him in a villain role. Can you? Um, Not like, off the top of my head. I'm sure he's done a couple of movies where I mean, he's I'm been I'm sure he show, has. But... I mean, everyone does at some point. But, yeah. I mean, all his big movies. I mean, I can only think of him as the as the hero. Yeah. Um, I do love the fact that one kind of piece of trivia is that uh, Weiler uh, said that uh, he made he made Heston redo the take where he says "I'm a Jew" sixteen times because he just didn't <laughs> believe it. I don't know if you watched the um, – I watched bits and pieces of the documentary. It's on the 50th set. Um, he talks uh, – Heston talks about where he made him redo the scene where he walks back into his house after all those years. He made him do it like seven or eight times. And he asked him because like, you know, tell me what I'm doing wrong because you're making me redo the scene and it's just literally just walking into my house. Like why am I – like, tell me what I'm doing wrong or what do you want, right? And he goes, like, well, the first time that we shot it um, – you uh you kicked like the the pod or whatever that was you know and it made this really distinct sound and i'm trying to get that sound again he's like well all i have to do is say so like i did that for you that first take like if you wanted that again you should have told me <laughs> so like he's just kind of laughing about that now because like he made him redo that one take of just him walking into his house like seven or eight times and he was like why am i doing this seven or seven times when you know it's just me walking into my house so I thought that was funny too. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't. I don't know though. Do you think what is more convincing to you, Charlton Heston as a Jew or Charlton Heston as a Mexican in Touch of Evil? Uh, <laughs> I think I'll go with the Jew. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm a Jew. <laughs> just, <laughs> he just said, "Just I can't. I can't." I, look. Charlton Heston was a good actor, but that he had such a Charlton Hestiness about him. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it just he's he was such a he was a movie star. He wasn't an actor, you know, because he had he was more of a personality to me than he was an actor. Because like every everything I see him in, it's just like he yeah, had just Charlton Heston. Like I, I him as Moses is is also kind of kind of funny to watch too, right? Uh, uh- <laughs> That's true. Um, actually, one more thing before uh, before we get into the movie. I mean, you might, you maybe, probably we're going to talk about this later. But uh, let's talk about how Gore Vidal claimed that since yes. he was one of the contributors to Carl uh, Tumberg's screenplay, that uh, he claims that he inserted some homoerotic subtext into the Masala and Judah Ben Hur. Yeah, friend. I was actually going to get to that, but we can talk about it now. The the he he was hired on as one of the as one of the screenwriters, but they they ended up going with Turnberg Turnberg script, Turnberg script. Um, he he I think he was kind of like after the initial script, Gore Vidal came in and did some some work on it, and then they went with the Carl Turnberg script. Um, and Vidal apparently told Stephen Boyd like he should play it uh, as if he is a spurned lover, um, right? Uh, and which is kind of an interesting take because I actually kind of thought during those sequences, whenever they kind of get back together, like in the beginning of the movie where they kind of reunite at the beginning of the movie, uh, I think to they, I actually, before I read that, I kind of thought to myself, this does have a little bit of a, a vibe to it. Not quite, right. not quite, but there's like, it feels like there's something just a little bit there. 
Um, but but I was like, well, maybe I'm just reading too much into it. But uh, it's interesting because then that Gordal said that. So I don't know how much truth there is to him saying to him claiming that he told Stephen Boyd to 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 do that. Apparently, it. it Really pissed Heston off though, because yeah, Heston I, I, apparently yeah. wrote an entire ad in like Variety or something that saying how ridiculous this was. Yeah, and um, and I'm kind of leaning towards believing him because it's the same guy who who wrote Caligula. So when it comes to stuff like that, I believe him. Um, and the uh, the the scuttlebutt also is that uh, he kind of told Wyler about this. Wyler thought about it for a while, and uh, he agreed to it, but he told Vidal not to mention it to Charles and Eston because, quote, Chuck will fall apart. So, and then um, in Heston's memoir, he disputed that the Gore Vidal's claim. Um, and, of course, Vidal just responded to it by saying, you know, he would, wouldn't he, quote. So, I mean, again, now it's going to be just up to the viewer, like, to decide whether you see that or not. In the well, movie. I mean, everyone involved is dead now. So, I mean, you're just going to have to believe who we believe, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, but, um, but yeah, it, I mean, it could, I could certainly see. I know they definitely, now it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I know there was definitely, like, homoerotic, like, undertones in Spartacus. Um, and I think that was more on purpose. And with and with Stanley Kubrick behind the camera, I certainly believe that, that was the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in this one, I felt like I kind of, like I kind of felt it, but I wasn't sure. You know, I was like maybe, maybe not. So I don't know. I could see it either way. I could see like it actually being there on purpose, uh, and I could also see like Gorvidal just you know trying to toot his own horn. Yeah, or trying to be a troll. Yeah, exactly. I could see either way. All right, so let's get into the the movie proper. Um, of course, we start as all epic movies from back in the day started. We start with an epic overture uh, with uh, Miklos Roshka uh, wrote the score. Uh, very kind of iconic, adventurous music, you know. Um, and then we go from that right into uh, basically the, nativ- the nativity story. Yes. It's essentially our prologue, and then we get into the uh, title cards. Yeah, with with no with I mean I know there was some narration, but I mean the nativity story is pretty much played silently, from what I remember. Yeah, like they they pretty much I mean everyone knows it. Like oh you know, Star it's Bethlehem. the same it's the same backstory that uh in the silent film also because like I said I watched the first five minutes, so essentially that whole little you know the 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 written part like the 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 written cards in the silent film like you know you know in the year of caesar augustus uh people had to return to their homelands to be taxed and all that like for the census so that's all the narration in in this version so it just tells you the background you know about that the census that year that people had to go back to their hometowns to be taxed and all that and then after that the rest of the nativity sequence is just played silently just kind of see everything happen yeah, it, 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 yeah, like you said, it, it took it does the same thing in the 1925 version, and that's because the uh, book basically does that as well. The book, um, from my research, that looks like it's a book in eight different parts, uh, and the first part is just the whole nativity sequence with the that basically everything we see there. And from what I can tell, there's not a lot that they vary from the book. Um, the pretty much the whole adventure takes place how it's supposed to take place there's a couple of things that they change um so the re- you know it starts with the nativity scene and then it goes into judah ben Hur's story you know then he becomes a slave then he be- you know is then he's on the on the ships and then he is a charioteer um there's a there and then after that he you know gets his revenge and and then the whole jesus storyline but then after where the film ends uh like apparently the book goes on for like another part of like him 
becoming a Christian and doing all, you know, everything else. Um, so, I mean, it can make sense that they start with the nativity because that's how the book starts as well. Uh, so, uh, so, I mean, yeah, it, it's interesting. Like, and I, I wonder how that plays out for people who aren't Christian, who don't know the story as well, or who, because you, you and I are both, we're both raised, you know, Christian Catholic, I believe. Um, and so we know the story, we just look at it and we know exactly what's going to happen from right. the story. Right. Um, it's a very, I mean, it's the, it's the Christmas story. So, um, it's, it's easy to kind of catch on without seeing, but then I wonder how much that translates this to like, you know, uh, a non-Christian audience, you know, that, that wouldn't, would, that wouldn't know it by, by sight. And that's interesting. You you say that too, because I remember, uh, there's a lot of, uh, interviews and there was even a couple of people in the, um, I don't know, remember who they were. It might've been really Scott might've been one of them when the, in that little, uh, featurette they did on the 50th set where they're like, you know, what they tried to do was like, he, Wilder kind of walked a very fine line between going overly, you know, religious with the Jesus story and, you know, going, you know, completely in the other direction, which is telling like a, uh, an action adventure movie, you know, and he kind of towed that line to, to make a movie where, you know, no matter what your denomination or no matter what your faith or whatever, no matter what your beliefs, like, you know, you enjoy the movie for what it is. And I kind of agree with that. Um, like you said, it, it is, it, it's a little interesting to think about like, you know, a non-Christian or somebody who's not religious seeing that and, you know, under trying to understand what that is or maybe not knowing what that is. But um, I think with the whole with the little the little parts that Jesus does show up with throughout the main story before we get to like, you know, the ending part, um, I think it's kind of made clear who that is anyway. Uh, so I think with the way they shot it, with the way they kind of structured it, it I kind of do agree that they kind of make a movie that can be enjoyed by anybody no matter what, I think. Yeah, interesting. Uh, to me, like, I mean, I, I certainly, um, I certainly think the film is a lot better when it's just focusing on the action adventure story than when it focuses on the bookends of the of the of the Christianity stuff. Um, I, I feel like, well, I mean, we'll get to it, but I feel like that's where the film kind of loses me a little bit. Well, well you know what it is too, and and uh, we'll, we'll talk about this briefly. Um, I'm kind of in agreement with you because this last, this most recent viewing I had, um, to me, and I don't know if you felt this way also, it felt like the Jesus parts were kind of just shoehorned in. Yeah, that's know? what it feels like. It, like. I don't want to say they're out of place because, I mean, they're meant to be there. They are, because, yeah. But because Judah's story is just so grand and it takes up the majority of the film – it's almost like the film was like, oh, wait, we have to talk about Jesus again. So they kind of have to put that part in. Do you know what you it know? feels like? It feels like and – not, and I'm not trying to be funny when I say this. It feels like Christianity fan service. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, right. like, the, like it's like, hey, there are all these big moments like, okay, the nativity story, the Sermon on the Mount – um, the, uh, you know, the crucifixion and, and, you know, uh, you know, and the, the rise, it feels like we got to get all this stuff in here, you know, and, and stick it in little places so that the people, it's like Marvel Easter eggs, right? Like, oh, right. people know what that is. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> it feels a little bit like fan service. And that, I think that's kind of why it sticks out to me because now I know that the whole point of the movie, the whole point of like, uh, Judah's character arc is that, you know, he becomes, you know, he's very vengeful. And then towards the end, he becomes, he, you know, he accepts the, 
forgive not necessarily forgiveness, but he accepts love and 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 compassion into his heart to become a you know instead of keeping that hatred inside of him. And I know that's supposed to tie in with the Christianity aspect. Then I get that as a character arc. I just think you could have done it without all that stuff. But again, you know, they probably would have pissed off too many people by not including it because yeah. that book was apparently huge. Like the book was the biggest bestseller until like Con with the Wind came. So yeah. um, it, it was something that like you probably couldn't have like taken too many liberties with. Right. And, and of course, again, I'm sure you and you and I, we don't mean disrespect. But when we say this, it's just obviously the original story, the, the book had all these parts in it, so the movie had to have it, quote unquote. But um, it just felt like when when we got to the Jesus parts, like they felt very like I don't want to say they felt out of place, but they just kind of felt they they stuck out because they they, they out. did they weren't really like part of the uh, the main story. They're kind of just like little side quests for Judah that weren't really uh, that I don't want to say it didn't matter, but it weren't wasn't really part of like his journey at that point you know they kind of just felt like like you said more like a fan service type of thing yeah um yeah it's just how i feel it's just how i feel and i get why they did it but it just it just takes away from the main story to me um but back to the story so we start with the movie after the after the nativity sequence and the title sequence we get to uh you know we kind of fill it in where the story begins where masala is coming into uh judea and he is uh, he's he's now the tribune of of the of the region. He's he's commanding the legion in, in that in that area. Uh, and you know we're kind of introduced very quickly to the concept of the Romans have taken over the area. The 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 Jews in the area do not like the Romans being there. Um, but Judah and uh, Masala are childhood friends. Uh, and you know Masala has come back to to. The, take over the area but he he wants to judah's help you know kind of appealing to his to their old friendship uh and to to help him kind of win over the the locals to you know to to let the basically to let the romans take over and here what's so great about this too i think um you see them reunited and just from like the first like what minute two minutes you believe that they've been best friends forever. You believe that these two guys have known each other their entire lives. Just the way they're very chummy with each other and just the way that Hested and Boyd are kind of acting off of each other. Like you buy it like immediately that that these guys are like the best of friends. And then it makes it even harder for you as the viewer too later on, which we're going to get to when that friendship is essentially broken. You feel bad. Like you're like, oh no. Like you, you, like you feel sad that this happened, especially in, in the the – when uh, Judah goes back to uh, to his house and he tells uh, his mom and his sister, you know, we shall never see him again. And you're like, like, oh, that's just that's terrible, you know. But that just speaks to the to, again to the great performances by Boyd and Heston. Like, you know, this first sequence it kind of sets everything up for what's to come. And you know, these two hit it out of the park. They have great chemistry together. They do have great chemistry, which kind of leans to that uh, homoerotic uh, <laughs> theory <laughs> right. from, from Gorbachev. So it does kind of lean into that. Um, but yeah, they do really work together as like the protagonist and the antagonist. They set that up really well here. Um, you know, and, um, you know, there's two big major scenes with them. Uh, actually there's three, but the, the first big major scene is when they first reunite. The second is, uh, whenever, um, uh, Masala comes to like visit him at his home and then they kind of have an argument when they finally, when they actually have the falling out. And then the third one is after he's in prison. But um, the, 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 the second one here, you know, 
he goes to visit his house and he's like you can see like he his mother uh judah's mother is very fond of him judah's sister is very fond of him judah's very fond of him judah buys him this beautiful horse you know and and then after all this you see them and then you have that moment where they're talking and he's basically masala is basically like look you got to tell me who these people are that don't want me around because because uh, they got to go. <laughs> and he's basically giving him an ultimatum. And he wants him to betray his people. And to uh, accept that they are conquered. You know. Uh, and and Gita basically says, no, I'm not going to do that. And as we know, only a Sith deals in absolutes. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> so uh, of course, um, like if that is the choice, then I am against you. <laughs> a great line. <laughs> And then, and that's that. So, uh, and then, like I said, there's, and then immediately after that, I mentioned that scene. He comes back in to have a uh, dinner with his family, and he, t- he says, "We shall never see him again." And then you just, you just feel heart, like, oh, like these guys are, these guys are best friends. Like, I'm sure they could work it out, right? Uh, but that's, that's definitely not the case. Um, exactly. So, uh, we get another scene where uh, Judah, um, his, his kind of longtime servant, has, has come back. His Longtime slave, really, uh, has come back and you know with his daughter Esther, uh, his his daughter's asking. It's funny because like his daughter, who is you know has to ask Judah for permission to marry somebody else, which is interesting. And Judah right. gives her his blessing, but uh, he really is in love with her. So that kind of sets up this romantic subplot that really kind of gets dropped here and until he comes back, like to Judea like two hours later. Uh, right. But it's interesting. They, 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 it's there to set that up, that romantic subplot there. Um, but uh, basically, uh, Judah, the, you know, the, the visiting governor comes in with all his kind of big parade going through town and Judah. And uh, I, I never know how to say her name. Is it Tirsa? His sister is Tirza. Tirza. Yeah. Uh, they're on a roof, kind of just watching the parade. Tirza accidentally knocks some tiles off of the roof, hits the governor uh, in the head, and then uh, they, they, uh, Masala basically, even though he knows it's an accident, basically uses this as like, well, they tried to assassinate the governor. He's got to go, they got to go to jail. Yep. And essentially, this is uh, because of the little spat they had before. Masala essentially is trying to use this as an example to the people of Judea. Like, listen, you know, I condemned the guy I've known my entire life, my former best friend. I condemned him to the galley. So, you know, I mean business. So it was more like uh, you try to be used as a deterrent to the people. Um, and, and like you say, he knew that it was an accident because he actually went up there and looked at the tiles himself and he touched one of them and it fell right off. So he knew Judah was telling the truth. But he said, you know, now that he's gone like full dark side, he's like, you know what? I'm going to use this to my advantage. Like, he didn't want to help me. So we're going to make an example out of him. And then there's a great villain villain moment whenever uh, uh, Judah is like, and when I return, I will, you know, take my vengeance or whatever he says. And he Masao just goes, return. Return. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, that's, that's cold. So, um, so Judah is separated from his family. His family basically is taken to the dungeons and, 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 and locked up in, in jail, in prison, in the dungeons. And uh, Judah is enslaved as part of the galleys. Uh, and this is where we get our first Jesus cameo. Well, I guess the second one, because baby Jesus was the first one, right? Yeah. So this is their first like full-grown uh, man Jesus cameo. Um, he's uh, he's kind of in this long chain of, of slaves, uh, and uh, he's denied water by the... Uh, by the commanding officer 
And but then here comes Jesus from behind. You don't see him. Um, you don't see his face. You just kind of see these hands drop down and give this man give Judah water. And then as as the slaves get moved on, you see him stand up. And you see the back of his hair, back of his head with his long brown locks flowing. You know, uh, mm-hmm. so so it's our first like, hey, there's Jesus. Yeah, and and for those wondering, yes, this is the same scene that was parodied in The Simpsons with Mr. Burns as Jesus. <laughs> Drink up, Judah Ben-Hur. And then Heston, as Heston, says, you truly are the king of kings. <laughs> Wait, did Heston actually play that part? No, but oh. they actually but they drew the guy like Heston, so it was supposed to be him, obviously. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite Simpsons moments. So there you go. So that is just yes, – that's the same scene that was used for that parody, just in case people were wondering. <laughs> oh, it can't, it's not an Essential Films episode unless we talk about The Simpsons. Simpsons, that's right. Uh, so – after I think they say three years, he he's he's uh he's on Quintus Quintus Arius's ship. Um, Quintus Arius. Arius, sorry, yes. Arius's ship. Uh, all these Roman names, dude. Uh, Quintus Arius, played by Jack Hawkins, who we saw in another films, uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai. That's right. Um, he's assigned to a ship as one of the uh the rowers. What do you call those? I guess that's what they are. They they row the ship. Yes. Um, and. Uh, you know, there's a great scene where Quintus is like kind of testing everybody and it's like uh, cruising speed, ramming speed, you know, attack. Oh, speed. You, all, you mean him being a dick? Yeah. yeah and he's just trying to get to see like, I think, and he's watching, uh, he's watching uh, Judah basically never stop. And holy crap, Heston is jacked in this scene. As are all the extras here. All the extras too, but like Heston in general. There's a scene where like uh, Quintus come like, uh, like, uh, uh, ask him to come to his like room to talk to him about being a gladiator, and then Heston walks in. And he's just like, he's just like muscles on muscles, dude. He looks huge. He's taking his vitamins. <laughs> as, as somebody infamously said, like he was chiseled from stone. <laughs> as, as, yeah, he was. He was Jack for this movie, especially during these scenes. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, and uh, so basically. Uh, Quintus kind of takes a liking to him because he knows that he's like a determined. He can tell he's like a determined uh, guy. Like, and uh, he he un he unleash he what he unclasps his chains, um, right and basically in time to get attacked by uh, these pirates uh, in this big huge like naval battle. Uh, and during this big naval battle, uh, Quintus falls into the ocean. Um, Judah rescues him and. Uh, and as they find out after they are after they are rescued, um, that the 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 Romans actually won the fight, and Quintus gets credit for it, and he wouldn't have known that if, uh, if Judah never saved his life. Right, right. And a little fun fact here: that whole uh, battle sequence done with miniatures. Which, yeah. if you know that, which if you know that information, it's so obvious once you see it. But. Uh... Uh, but yeah, so the interiors obviously were the big sets, but like you know the outside, like with the shooting and everything, that was all little models. Yeah, and it kind- looked it looks pretty good. Like when I was watching it, I was sitting there going, "That looks really good." I know they didn't. And then as I, I looked at it really close, I was like, "Oh, they're miniatures, they're models." And once you know they're models, you're like, "Well, they're obviously models." But it's yeah. still it's still kind of fun to look at because you you can still kind of um what's the word I'm looking for? You can still kind of uh separate that from reality and like you know lose yourself into the into the story and watch the watch the the battle go on but um it's still kind of fun to watch right definitely and uh and that that whole sequence is great too um especially with like you said um you know aris is about to kill himself thinking that he lost the battle um but 
you know, Judah, you know, Judah saves him. And then once he, they get rescued, you know, he finds out that, that in fact, the Romans won, which I, they don't explain how, which is that they won, apparently, so, even though they lost five ships, but whatever. So, so yeah. And then uh, Ares is a hero now. So Ares is a big war hero. Uh, he's kind of welcome. Uh, welcome. I think they're in Rome. Kind of yeah. with open arms. Uh, and he petitions the emperor. Emperor Tiberius, uh, <laughs> to 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 let him free Judah, uh, and I think he basically I think he says, um, what does he do? I think he does free him, but under a condition. What was the condition? I can't remember what it was. Then, well, but. well, I mean, he wanted to do he wanted to free him initially, and then, uh, well, the emperor the emperor said, and, and I like his quote. He goes like, you know, he, you know, he's accused. You know, he tried to kill one of my governors, and now he's saving the life of one of my consuls. So like this guy is like he essentially said, it doesn't make sense. Like you know, his actions because they contradict each other, right? So we'll see what we're gonna we'll see what we can do for him. Um, and then I think the next scene, you know, he said, you know, his charges were like very serious, um, and uh, you know, but you know, Eris is like, well, I wanna, you know, I wanna free him. So like we're we're gonna give him to you as your slave, and you do what you want with him. Essentially, is what Tiberius says. Oh, that's so then what it cuts, it is, yeah. yeah. So then it cuts to the next scene, which I believe is a year later, and then we get to the whole adoption thing. Right, and and then the year later, you you know you know that uh, like you kind of get filled in like. Oh, he's for this whole year. He's been like a chariot racer, uh, and he's been like getting kind of. You kind of get the thing. He's been getting kind of wealthy, and then you know, Arius says, "No, uh, I, I lost my son long ago, but this, you know, uh, Judah's basically become my my surrogate son, and he's the person that I I want to like pass on my my legacy to, and he's gonna be my he's my adopted son, uh, which means a lot to to Judah. Even though like when you think about it, Quintus wasn't that great of a guy. He still had like commanding slaves on ships and stuff like that but whatever yeah we'll forget about that um <laughs> and then and during this party we get some more christian fan service like hey pontius pilots here um <laughs> like, like, hey there he is um and that's exactly how how it is too because when i was watching it last i was like oh it's pilot oh i don't you know what guy. it's like you know what it's like it's like in episode one was like Obi-Wan Kenobi, meet Anakin Skywalker. Well, there like, you go. Judah That's Ben-Hur, right. meet Pontius Pilate. Pilate. <laughs> you know? That's right. Uh, it was, dude, that's, that's what it felt like, the whole movie. Yep. Uh, but, you know, just looking at, just, I mean, I, I wrote down on my notes, um, during this one sequence, like that, that party they're having, I mean, it, this movie won a ton of Oscars, and one of them was to its production design, and you can tell just by watching this movie, how much money was spent on it. Cause that product, the, the sets on this thing were amazing. I mean that like everything just looks beautiful on camera. Yeah. I mean, going from the, the big giant sets to the matte paintings they use, everything just looks so good. Like a lot of these matte paintings, you can't even tell they're matte paintings. You think like they're real, they're real sets, you know, that just goes to the talent that went into all of this. And it's just like, you kind of sit back and you just kind of look at all that stuff. And you just, just amazed like how much manpower went into it, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of an impressive, uh, just technical achievement in and of itself. Which, which uh, you know, you know, you can watch other movies from that era and say, well, maybe this movie is better, that movie is better. But there, I, there's no other film from that year that could have been could have matched its technical achievement. Right. So after he's become his son, his adopted son. Like Judah finally feels like, all right, I have wealth, I have a station in life, I have um, a position of of authority, like of power. It's now time to go back to Judea and and you know confront Masala. 
So which you know he starts on his way back, and on the way back he meets uh, he meets Hugh Griffiths uh, as the Sheik, um, <laughs> not the, the Iron Sheik. Just... No, not the Iron Sheik. Uh, well, he meets Balthazar too, but he also meets yeah. the Sheik Idirim, 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 which is played by Hugh Griffith uh, in the brownest brown face I think in the history of movies. <laughs> I mean, it looks like they painted him with Hershey syrup. Oh man, I, I mean, it's it, really bad. it looks like they took like freaking like charcoal ash and just put it on. <laughs> it looks so bad. Like, yeah, the, the dude, and I, and I had to look it up. I was like, all right, what is this guy? What is Hugh Griffith's background? He's like from Wales. He's a white dude from Wales, you know. And they're like, yeah, let's just paint him brown. He's an Arab now. It's like, yep. yikes, you know. I know stuff like that was more acceptable back in the day, but when you watch it like sixty years later, and according like, to Megyn Kelly, it still is. Yeah, well, but well, <laughs> she's, she's a moron. Um, but when you watch it like sixty years later with like twenty eighteen eyes, you're like, oof, that is that is inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> that said, Hugh Griffith is actually really good here. He's actually really he's a kind of a fun character. Um, but it's just it's just so <laughs> it's so wrong. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like you look at you look at him, and you look at Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. You're like, oh, how how far we've come, you know, from that. I think from Mickey that Rooney is much worse. Mickey <laughs> yeah. Rooney is much worse. I think that's the that is the worst one ever. You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, not not counting like the people in blackface and the uh, Birth of a Nation. I mean, that's probably the worst ever. Yeah. Um. Anyway. So uh, he meets the sheik, and the sheik has basically all these beautiful horses. And uh, he's basically uh, thinks he can. Uh, he's basically there to set up the fact that he's a, he ha, he can he can uh, bankroll a chariot racer, right? Um, that's so essentially he's Qui Gon Jinn in this scenario. Pretty much, like he gets the uh, he's the one with the pod, and he needs uh, Anakin to race it for him. You know? Exactly. So. Um, and then he goes uh, after this. Uh, Judah goes back to Judea. He meets up with Esther, um, who who has been living in his old house with her with her father. Uh, she knows that uh, that uh, his mother and actually no, I'm sorry. Uh, before we get to that part, he Judah comes back and he actually in has an a, epic scene where he comes back to to face Masala. Yeah, he goes I, face I, I was Masala. I forgot about that. Yeah, he has yeah. he has a face face with Masala. Where he's... And, and that that freaking uh, who was that guy that who was like his his like his his right hand man or whatever like uh, oh I forget his name Drus Drusus or something yeah Drusus is there and you know he's like oh like who's oh it's uh it's the uh the young Arius you know I never I, I heard about his exploits you know with the chariot racer he's he's quite a skilled you know chariot racer and you know he gave me this gift you know I never met the guy essentially he said he's like oh and he gave me this really nice gift you know like send them in. And he's like masala. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. It's and a really, he it's out a of good the shadows. Yeah, and then, it's he, Judah though. Yeah, he's he's got like a silhouette in the background, and he walks in, and it's like all the like, oh yeah, it's me. He's <laughs> like, oh, it's about to go down now. <laughs> um, he basically says, uh, you gotta tell me where my mother and mother and sister are. Like, we're gonna. I mean, he doesn't really give him an ultimatum. He's just like, you're gonna do it, and you're gonna tell me now. <laughs> you know, um. So that's whenever, uh, because Masala doesn't even know. He just was he find, he asks him the he asks his, his right hand man there to find out, and this is where the audience finds out that they are lepers, 
uh, and they are sent to the leprechaun colony, and Esther finds this out and refuses to Did you tell. say a leprechaun colony? Did I say leprechaun? <laughs> you said leprechaun colony. <laughs> a leprechaun <laughs> I think I tried to say leper and colony, and I said leprechaun. said leprechaun colony. <laughs> oh, jeez. That'd be awesome if they were leprechauns. Yeah. No, a leper colony. There you uh, go. Esther knows this information, but uh, re- refuses to reveal it to uh, to Judah, and basically instead tells him that they're dead. And this kind of sends Judah into his kind of revenge feel. Like he was already in revenge stage, but he's like now he's like no, now it's on now. And then uh, now he's gonna go after uh, he's gonna go after uh, uh, Masala. Well, remember. Um... Well, oh, yeah. So you said that I think Esther told him that they're dead, right? Because that's yeah. what going into the race. That's that's what he thinks that they're dead. So now he's gonna get like this final revenge against Masala because like once he once he does that, like his quote unquote his race is over. But when we get to that scene, um, that's a great scene, by the way. And uh, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you why when we get there. But but yeah. So right now going into this race, you know, he thinks his mom and his sister are dead, and he's just like, you know what? I gotta kill this guy. I gotta beat him, and I gotta kill him. So. Now we got the big, uh, the big chariot race. But here. before we get there, before we get there, there's the great scene where the sheik basically comes in and goads Masala into into getting into the race. Uh, yes. He brings a big chest full of like gold, and he's like, "Look, I, I'm just gonna bankroll a guy, you know, and uh, I just want to see if the Romans want to take a bet with me, you know." They're like, "Oh, two to one odds." He's like, "Well, I guess if you're not serious about it, yeah, I guess I'll exactly." Just... Eventually, he gets him up to four to one odds. And you know, because the Romans like, oh, four to one. That's uh, just like the the ratio from a Roman to a Jew, Jew. a Roman to an Arab. Arab. You know, and then it's like, well, who's your race? He's like, oh, Judah Ben Hur. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then of course, uh, yeah, so, so when it got serious, and so uh, that's basically get goads uh, Masala into to being in the race himself as well. And before we move on, also like right before this scene, actually, we had the uh, the intermission. Right. Which you don't see anymore. And I, yeah. I love, I love when, when you know when movies today when they go like when they go long and they put an intermission in between. Like I feel like it's so old school, but like the good kind of like nostalgic old school, right? I, I miss those times where you had like intermission in between. They like did that in, with the Hateful Eight at the yes, road they show. did with this this road show. That's right, and I popped so fun. hard for that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, now we get to the chariot sequence, the chariot race, the best part of the movie, pretty much. Um, no CGI, no green screen, uh, just actors, horses, stuntmen, props, and a huge ass set. Yep. Um, and my is it glorious? It's so good. I mean, it's really, it's really easy to be jaded in today's like day and age about like effect sequences and things like that. But this is legitimately like, and I'm not trying to be, um, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here. But this sequence is legitimately one of the greatest technical achievements like ever filmed. Like just this sequence alone, just like nine, ten minute sequence of uh, is an amazing accomplishment. Um, on top of the fact that it's probably one of the greatest action sequences ever filmed. Um, it took, I think they said it took like a couple months to film um, and they did it several times. So like they did the uh, a whole they did a long shot of just the stuntmen doing the entire sequence and then they had to go back in and figure out where they were going to put the the uh, the close-ups and the medium shots. And then there were a bunch of shots where, you know, they were. It's not just like, for example, Charlton Heston in front of like a rear projection screen. It's like he's on. They had he had to learn how to him and Stephen Boyd and everyone else had to learn how to ride those things. Yeah. Uh, and 
because there are certainly shots where you can see Heston full body in that chariot with the horses running at full speed, and that's not a stunt double, you know? So uh, it's pretty, it's really impressive. Yeah, there was a, there was a scary sequence too where I think like Heston's stunt double, like the, like the scene where um, like uh, Judah kind of like, like the, the the chariot jumps over the other chariot that was already like broken. Like he like he, he it makes him makes a chariot jump and then like he jumps over like the uh, chariot that's about to fall off. But then like he finds his balance. Like that part was like the like his stuntman, and they thought that like the guy like legit died at that point. <laughs> um, but uh, turned, I mean, obviously the guy was okay. But it's like it's one of those move things that like just happened. Like it wasn't planned. And it, it just felt so realistic that they just left that part in the movie. So that whole sequence where, like, the chariot jumps over, like, that other broken one and the guy falls over. Right. That was uh, that was that was supposed to happen. Yeah. Uh, it, but it, it looked so good and natural that they just left it. You know, the guy was okay. So they went ahead and, like, okay, we'll just leave that in then. That, that was perfect. Yeah. So, so it's one of those, like, happy accidents. Yeah. So a little more on, on that specific on that specific moment. So the, the whole chariot race was actually not directed by Wyler. It was directed by uh, two second unit directors. Andrew Martin and Yakima Kanut. We'll say um, Yakima here. <laughs> Yakima Kanut. Um, and uh, they each had their own assistant directors, one of whom was Sergio Leone, which I think is interesting. Yeah, that's um, cool. So the the sequence that you're talking about now where the, the cart flips and then the stuntman flies out, that's actually uh, Yakima's son, who was a stuntman. He was okay. Oh, he didn't them. get hurt. And... Weiler was going to cut that out because it didn't fit uh, the the um, uh, what were it wasn't consistent with what happened within the race. It wasn't uh, uh, it was a continuity error. So they said, no, you have to use this because it's a spectacular shot. So just film something else of of uh, Judah like climbing back into the cart afterwards and yeah. which is what they did and that's how they ended up keeping the scene because right. like they were actually going to cut it but they convinced Weiler to keep it in because it looks so good yeah. um interestingly enough as as crazy as this thing was to look at no one died there's a bunch of urban legends out there that people have died on this this this, this shoot but no one died um and uh I don't know if we can say the same for the horses. Um, apparently, the original Ben Hur uh, is kind of notorious for animal cruelty <laughs> during yeah. that sequence. Uh, I don't think this has the same reputation, but uh, I, from my research, I couldn't find anything about any, any, the horses being in any danger. But there were seriously some scenes in there where I was like, like those guys that would come out with the stretchers. There were some sequences in there where like those guys barely got out of the way. You know, like they would yeah. come in, they'd put the dude on the stretcher, and they'd like walk away, and then like a second later, the horse would like go right in that spot. So like that was some really good coordination there. Yeah, and with the way everything is shot, like the way just everything just going like full speed, like you're watching this and you're seeing like the the stretcher dudes like just barely get out of the way of the horses, and you're like, holy crap! <laughs> like you know, like um, and you know, at, you know, your first. Thing you go to now in your mind is like, oh, that has to be fake. But like, no, you, no, it's not. Like those are real horses charging at real people, and they just barely got out of the way. So it's and that just increases like the, the the wow factor of this entire sequence. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is such a beautiful, um, just a such a beautiful looking shot. Uh, uh, sorry, sequence, and it just looks so good from top to bottom. It's never boring. Um, the uh, 
you know, the, the other kind of uh, fun fact about this is the um, the kind of pageantry sequence before before it was the the event happens. It was a shot for shot remake of the original um, uh, nineteen twenty five film. So everything from is apparently they used every single shot from that and and put it in there. Um, and do you know what other movie? Uh, Paid homage to this to that pageantry sequence in a sh- an almost shot for shot remake. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell me? Star Wars Episode One. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I knew you were Menace. going with that one, but I was going to say, you know what? Maybe there's another one that I, I've never heard of. But you went with Star Wars. That that was the whole thing I, I alluded to earlier with Qui Gon and the pod. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, yes, so George Lucas apparently loves the chariot race scene, and I mean he was interviewed for that uh, little feature red too on the on the Blu-ray for Ben Hirsch. So, um, so yeah, so he put in the uh, pod race as an homage to Ben Hur, which is funny because technically that pod race is the best thing about that movie, but it feels so out of place in a way. Like they kind of like he he wanted an excuse to put something as grandiose as the chariot race into into this movie, and. He put that pottery in for that reason, apparently. But it, it's the best like shot, the best sequence in that entire movie. Um, but did we really need it? You know, like no. it, it, that's the thing about that. But it's it's just there for the spectacle. But you know, hey, like we said, it's the best part of that movie. So. So um, as the pod race go, goes on, you know you can tell it's a it's a brutal it's a brutal race, and and you get towards the end, and uh, Masala, who has put like these spikes, these blades on his wheels, keeps trying to like uh, ram uh, Judah off of the off the track with his spikes, and like you know mess up his wheels. He had done it already to like at least one or two other people. They get like kind of neck and neck at one point, and he starts just whipping them. <laughs> It's kind of yeah. it's such a heel move, just like yeah, right. just like I'm just gonna start whipping him, you know, just whipping the hell out of him. Then Judo, like a boss, like grabs the whip and then starts whipping him back. Um, and, and, and in that same sequence, I think too, like their uh, their chairs get stuck together right at the end. And right at that point, you know, I'm a, I'm I'm watching this, you know, my my most recent screen to get ready for the show. I'm watching this part and I'm mimicking the uh, the two headed guy from Star Wars, like they're side by side, boom, 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 go. <laughs> I'm just going do that commentary in my head because like oh my god this is like literally what george lucas puts in the pirates too like they get stuck together at the end and then um eventually judah's chariot wins out and uh bye bye masala and that's brutal by the way what happens to that guy so yeah like, I, like Saboba got off easy yeah he gets trampled by by the horse uh, uh by the horses judah wins the race and um it, you get a sequence where uh the dying uh Dying Masala kind of love this, love this. I freaking he, love this scene. He has summoned Judah to to to, to come see him, and uh, there's a it's a gr- another great shot where he like he's in the foreground. He's like all messed up, and he's his hands are up in like stirrups or I don't know what you'd call them, but like he, he's like being held up. And then all of a sudden, you see in the background, you see Judah's uh, Judah's silhouette, uh, and he kind of comes in, and then basically Masala just tells him. No, your your mother and sister are still alive. They're in the you know, and he tells them where to find them. Yeah, he. But but here's here's the brilliance of this, bro. Stephen Boyd, amazing job here because as Masala, literally on his deathbed, right, tells Judah, "Oh, you think you won? You got your vengeance. The race is over. You know, you got what you wanted. Um, but your your mother and sister are still alive, so your race isn't over yet." And then that's when he's like, you know, tell me where they are, Masala. Where are they? <laughs> you know, 
you can find them in the valley of the lepers. And then they're like, dun, 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 and you see just Judas' faces change just to get, you know, because he thinks they're dead this whole time. And with Masala's death, like his journey is over. His circle is complete. But Masala says, oh, no, they're alive and they're lepers now, which just crushes Judah. And this is essentially Masala, even though Judah bested him in the race, even though Judah essentially got him killed, he gets the last laugh as he dies, bro, as a real heel would. Like, he dies thinking that he won. And that's such an um, – that goes to the amazing performance by Stephen Boyd. Just a great – I freaking love that scene, bro. Like, he dies thinking that he won, bro. And that's what makes – just that's what makes the whole thing work. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, this is where uh, – this is – like, to me, this is, like, where I, I have a kind of an issue with the rest of the film – because this is the climax to me, right? This is where the movie should should like start wrapping up, and then there's still another forty five minutes to go. You know, you got to put Jesus back in. Yeah, you got to go back to the whole Jesus thing. And again, I think this is the fault. This is kind of the, you know, this is called the Essential Films Podcast. This is absolutely an essential film. I think every um, every kind of film uh, aficionado, cinephile, whatever you want to call it, should watch the movies that we talk about here. But one thing we've never talked about really is that that doesn't mean every movie we talk about is flawless. And I think this is one of those movies where it's a fantastic technical achievement, but I think story-wise it it is flawed because I think it should end right around here, you know, like you should have some sort of reuni- reunion with the mother and daughter or with the mother and sister, but then it you don't get that. You have to like do the whole leper colony, the leprechaun colony, the leper <laughs> colony thing, and then the Jesus thing, and then the crucifixion, and then and then over and over. It's just like it goes on when it, it, we've had the emotion, the sad, the emotional climax, and the and the uh, action climax has already happened. But now we have to sit through another forty five minutes. I, I feel like this is this to me is my kind of issue with the with the rest of the film. Right. You kind of just have to you have to now hit the uh, the sweet. Fan service spots, you know, Sermon on the Mount comes after this, uh, after Masala's death. Then you have the uh, the trial. Then you have the crucifixion. Um, but before before that, though, so I think right after this, you have the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He meets Balthazar. You know, it's like, oh, Judah, I found him. I found him. Like the boy has become a man. You know, and he's you know he started his preaching, his ministry, and all that. And Esther kind of goes off to join the crowd. And you know, Judah's like, you know, I still have business with Rome. I don't have time for any of this. Um, and you know, Baltazar heard to warn him, you know, got to let this hate go, you know, like, just come with me, listen to Jesus. And he's like, Nope, I, I got, I got stuff. I got to handle. So I got business. So that's what leads into, I think this is probably the last, this next scene is probably the last scene related to Judah's story because everything else now after this revolves around Jesus. Yeah. You do uh, get the one scene where he's talking to Pontius and his Pontius is like, Hey, you're a citizen now. Like you can do whatever you want. And, and. And Judah's pretty much gives him a big F you. He's like, no, man, I hate you guys. I am a Jew. Like, I'm a Jew. <laughs> I am a Jew. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so bad. Um, you know, and then you're right. After this, it's like, that's why I don't like the rest of the story, because, like, it's not about him anymore. And it's like we've all were asked to suddenly shift to a completely different part. Even though we've gotten little bits and pieces of it here and there, we're just asked to completely shift perspective to something else. Um, and I think that's why I kind of have kind of <clears throat> a bit of an issue with it. But you're right. After this, it's all 
it's all him like just trying to you know meeting up with the you know like you said the sermon on the mount and the the crucifixion and everything else right um, right I love Pontius Pilate in this scene, though, because, you know, he goes like, you know, I came across this aisle as a friend of Ares. But when I go back on that chair, I become the right hand of Caesar. <laughs> you know, I, just, I, just, I love the uh, I love the acting. there. That, that's just a, a great sequence where basically Judah just renounces his citizenship. You're like, I am a Jew. <laughs> like we keep saying, I um, am a Jew. <laughs> um, he's no longer he no longer wants to be associated with Rome because he blames Rome for what happened to his family. He blames Rome for what happened to Masala. You know, because like Pontius Pilate is trying to tell him, "Whoa, listen! You know, Masala got what was coming to him." He's like, "No, I'm, I've known Masala more than longer than anybody has." Like, and what happened to him was Rome. Rome corrupted him just like it corrupted my family. You know, so he wants nothing to do with Rome. So he renounces, you know, his, uh, I guess his his child, his sonship. I'll call it to Arius. He renounces the citizenship, and now he's just going back to being a Jew. Uh, you know, it's interesting how. Um, Pontius Pilate is portrayed in different movies. Like they they run the gamut of like like full on villain to which is how I think he's portrayed here to like um, you ever see the Last Temptation of Christ? I have uh, where David Bowie is Pontius Pilate. Um, <laughs> he's only got like one scene, but he's like he's basically he's trying. He's not really a villain. He's like, look, man, just. Do what they want to do, and then you can be done with this. Like, I, and then when he doesn't, he's like, "All right, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm wash my hands of this." Um, so he's not really a villain. He's kind of like, eh, you know. And then I think the um, Passion of the Christ portrays him as much more conflicted. Like he's trying to do the right thing, but he really can't do the right thing, and his hands are tied. It's it's always interesting how they portray him in different in different movies. Yeah, and then you know some of it goes to the historical kind of a pilot, some of it more to the biblical. Like, and eventually, like you know, they I guess they try to either go one direction, or the other. They try to kind of try to meet in the middle. So that's why you always get like the different, uh, I guess, the different interpretations of pilot, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um. So, so basically, uh, Judah goes and gets his uh, wife and. Wife, I keep saying his wife and daughter, his mother and sister, uh, out of the leper colony, uh, and he basically wants to take them to see Jesus to to put heal them. But then they get the they get to they get there too late because now it is uh, it is time for the crucifixion. We we don't get the full crucifixion. You get kind of like again, it's not to diminish this, but you kind of get like the Forrest Gump version of of, of the crucifixion where like. Oh, he just happens to be there at the crucifixion, and he runs into, happens to run into Jesus, and gives him water and things like that. Uh, I lo- I love the little beat they did with the blind guy, like alms for the blind, you know, where they give him the coin, and then once he hears, like you know, that they're lepers, he he throws the coin out of the thing, bro. That's a, that's a, that's a that's a minor beat, but I kind of I I thought that was funny though. Yeah. Like, and then yeah, we get the trial. Like I love the scene where um like that that scene you know where you, where you see jesus from behind he's already all beat up he's wearing the crown pilots in the background already washing his hands then they do the behind shot of pilot and then they just black out jesus's face like it's almost like somebody took like a black sharpie and yeah. just like it looks really it weird yeah it like, kind of looks so out of place you know because like there's no shadow there like, it's like somebody like scratched it off you know so i thought that was kind of in- like weird and interesting <laughs> yeah um so after he he helps him with the water, he realizes that this is the same guy who helped him with the water. Um, we get the I know this man. <laughs> I know this man. Um, he uh, we get you know Jesus is crucified, and then you know uh, 
uh, afterwards, the... Uh, he gave me water and a heart to live. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then after, after the crucifixion, uh, there's a rainstorm, and the rain miraculously cures uh, um, Miriam and, T- and Tirsa of their leprosy, of the lep- of their leprechaun-y-cy, of the leprosy. <laughs> Uh, and then they're all healed. Judah comes back home with them and reunites with Esther, and they all hug, and the end. Yeah, the final the final line in the film spoken by Heston as Judah is, uh, and with this voice, I could feel him taking the sword out of my hand, which means he's officially been cleansed of his vengeance. He looks like he's becoming a Christian, which, like you said in the book, they kind of go more into that, but you can already tell just, you know, if Jesus, you know, kind of cured him of his hate, of his of his vengeance. Um, you kind of know that's the next logical step for him at this point. And then that's the last spoken line. Then he sees that uh, Miriam and Tisa are healed. He hugs them. He brings Esther in. They all hug together. And then that last shot, you see just the shepherd crossing uh, the spot where the crosses still stand from the crucifixion. And uh, and that's Ben-Hur. That's the end. Yeah. So uh, that's the end of the movie. Um, uh, like I said, I, I, I think that you could have you could have found another way to, to get to – get, um, to get to reunite with uh, Miriam and, and Tirsa, and then just end it sooner. But you know, whatever they don't pay me for these things, right? Um, right. But yeah, like you said, in the book, apparently it does go on a lot longer than that. Uh, but it, that, I think that is just my major criticism of the film. But other than that, it's an excellent movie. It, it's it's a beautiful uh, uh, technical achievement. Uh, it, like uh, we mentioned earlier, it it did uh, it was the biggest budget of all time at the at the time of fifteen point two million dollars, uh, and it but it paid off in spades it, in a box office of one hundred and forty six point nine million, which uh, in its initial release, which uh, adjusted for inflation, is one point two six billion dollars in twenty eighteen money. So nice, big hit, big hit. Yeah, you'd say. Uh, also, interestingly enough, a big merchandise hit. Uh, this was um, the Ben Hur actually created a brought in about twenty million dollars in, in merchandise, including and I thought I got a kick out of some of these merchandise things: candy, uh, children's tricycles in the shape of chariots, um, men's ties, bottles of perfume, Ben Hur and Ben His. Uh, <laughs> toy armor, toy swords, uh, and, and we then, thought Lucas was bad with his I merchandising, uh, and then and Bert Ben Hur as an H E R, by the way, um, and uh, and then uh, versions of the book with the like, kind of like what they do today, like the now a major Mosin picture, yeah, re- reprinting the bo- the original book but putting the uh, artwork or photos of the movie on it, you know, yeah, um, so ma- major success in merchandising as well. It won a record 11 Academy Awards, the first time any movie had ever done that. Uh, at, at that time, uh, it had not it had not been um, it had not been uh, ever accomplished by anybody. Uh, and it won Best Picture, Best Director, Actor for Heston, Supporting Role for Hugh Griffith, which I kind of popped for, uh, Best Cinematography. Uh, it won in everything it was nominated for, except uh, it was in 11 out of 12, except uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, and the people apparently, and I think the reason because that there's because of the whole Gore Vidal thing, there was some controversy as to who actually should get credit for whatever. Um, after that, after Ben Hur, um, Ben Hur was the biggest winner at the Academy Awards until Titanic tied it in 1998, and Lord of the Rings also tied that record in 2004. 
Yes. So there's only uh, two movies that, like I said, nobody's ever passed Ben-Hur, but Titanic and Return of the King have tied it. Um, I wonder if we'll get another movie like that that'll, I don't want to say beat any of these movies, but like at least maybe get up there to the 11, the sweet 11 spot. But I don't know. We'll see. But you have, I mean, but the, the way to do it, though, is is it has to be one of those quote unquote epics, right? Because yeah. it, it, look at it. Ben-Hur, Titanic, Lord of the Rings. Although the thing that they have in common is they're all big, epic, you know, movies. So not only do you have to have the creative side, um, but you also have to have be nominated in all those technical awards too. Right. So I mean that that is how you have to. So I, it's not going to go to something like, you know, um, La La Land or something or something small and personal like or Moonlight. It's going to go to a big. If it happens again, it's it's got to be a big epic motion picture. Right. Um, it's also been on many uh, AFI AFI lists. It's number seventy two on their hundred movies. Number forty nine on their hundred thrills. Uh, 21 on their film scores, 56 on their 100 Cheers, which is their most inspirational, and number two on their top 10 epic films. Um, I don't know what number one is. I, let me look real quick because I'm curious as to what that could possibly be. Uh, let me look. Ten Commandments. It might be Ten Commandments, but let me let's just check because yeah. now I'm actually kind of curious as what it could be. Uh, ben Hur. Here we go. Oh, it makes sense. Uh, number one is Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, okay. If that yeah. makes sense. Uh, also go. on the list, uh, The Ten Commandments, uh, Reds, Saving Private Ryan, All the Quiet on the Western Front, Titanic, Spartacus, Gone with the Wind, and Schindler's List. So pretty good company there. Yeah. Um, so that that is the that has been her. Um, it's available pretty much everywhere on, on any sort of uh, – you know your iTunes, your Vudu, your Amazon Prime, uh, as far as being able to rent and purchase uh, digitally. Um, but sounds like we both watched the 50th anniversary Blu-ray, um, which I would highly recommend as far as watching it on here because it is uh, a beautiful transfer. Yes, I was actually noticing that too as I was watching it. It was just everything just looked so. It looked like it had been shot like the last. Within the last like ten years, just how, how great the restoration was. It it didn't have that grainy look. It looked like it was something recent. You know, it just just goes to the work that it took to the kind of restoring the footage and just kind of upgrading it to Blu-ray. And it, it just looks awesome. Looks awesome. And it looks it, it looks good for a reason because it's funny because they call it the 50th anniversary edition, but it was released 52 years after <laughs> after yeah. the movie. Um, <laughs> but it the, it was actually a specific uh, restoration by Warner Brothers. Um, that cost them a million dollars, um, and so so there's a reason that it like they apparently went frame by frame on every single frame of that movie to restore it uh, on an 8K Oof. scan uh, of the original. Is it in this movie like 31 reels or something? Yeah, it's, like it's long. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, it's funny. One one kind of quick fact I wanted to mention before we move on is that it's funny that uh, that uh, the studio forced Weiler to film this in widescreen. Uh, because he hated widescreen, but I can't imagine this movie being like oh, no. four this, by this, three. That would look terrible. Yeah, something like this needs the grandeur of widescreen. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. So that that uh, anything else on Ben Hur before we move on to our next uh, our next movie? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, like I said, it's just one of those like like 
it, it's called the Essential Films Podcast Series. It, it is one of those essential films that if you consider yourself, you know, an aficionado, a cinephile, or whatever, it's something you have to see, something you have to cross off your uh, your bucket list. So definitely check this out. It deserves all of its accolades. It's an awesome movie, great performances, great story, um, and uh, definitely not a disappointment. So definitely, if you're if you're you know just starting your 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 uh, your journey down all these uh, classic films, or if you've seen this countless times like we have, you know, it's always, uh, it's always, uh, it's never a disappointment, I should say. So definitely check this out if you haven't seen it. If you have, you know, watch it again, because it's awesome. Yeah, and, and as far as any recommendations would go, I would say pretty much any of the Sword and Sandal movies we discussed, I would say um, uh, The Ten Commandments, um, The Robe. The Robe isn't great, but it kind of, um, it kind of fits in with, with, with these kind of movies. Um, uh, the greatest story ever told, the King of Kings. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else. The Bible uh, is, is another one. Any of those kind of movies, I think, would 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 be a good uh, uh, double feature with Ben Hur. Yeah. All right. So now for our next movie, uh, we're not going to pull out the random movie generator because our next movie is going to be our Christmas episode. So I did something a little different this year. I, I sent it out to Twitter and to Facebook. Um. So for the audience to vote on what our next movie should be, and I gave them four classic Christmas movies. Uh, they are, um, let's see here, they were Holiday Inn, The Bishop's Wife, White Christmas, and A Christmas Story. So I did a Twitter poll, and I also did a Facebook uh, a Facebook poll as well. And uh, I'm gonna give a I'm gonna give you the results of those polls and tell you what movie we're gonna be doing next. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna basically start with the the runner-ups until we get to our winner. Uh, in fourth place, surprisingly, I thought this would do better, A Christmas Story. Really? Yeah. Interesting. In third place, Holiday Inn. In second place, The Bishop's Wife, which means in first place, our Christmas movie this year will be White Christmas. And that's great because I saw that for $10 at Best Buy recently, so now I'm going to go pick that up. Especially now that Black Friday is around the corner. I'll yeah. pick that one up. And also, uh, it's also the uh, Fathom Events TCM screening in theaters this, in December as well. Oh, so you get the you get the theatrical screening. Let too. me let me look that up, too. Let me just make sure I, I can tell you what. Uh, you uh, know what? Yeah, if, if it's actually playing around here, too, then what they do. The Fathom Events is usually a nationwide thing. So It is, and I'll tell you when it is right now. It is uh, – December 9th and December 12th are the two days they're doing it. So um, we'll probably, I don't know when we'll record the episode, but you'll have a chance to see White Christmas in theaters uh, via Fathom events uh, if your theater participates in it on December 9th or December 12th. All right. Let me see if they're showing this nearby. Hold on. Well, why, you can keep talking. I'm just going to look this up. Yeah, so um, so it was kind of close. It was down to the wire between the bishop's wife and uh, White Christmas. It's only one vote separated the the two. So that's that's where we're going. So next year, I think I'll, what I'll do is um, I think I kind of like this tradition. So next Christmas we'll do it. We'll take we'll bring the three losers and add one uh, other classic Christmas film, and then see see which one wins there. So, ah, uh, but yeah, touche. that was a that that's a fun way to do it. I think from now on. Um, so White Christmas is our next film. Uh, make sure to follow us uh, at EssentialFilmsPodcast.com. Email us at EssentialFilmsPodcast at gmail.com. Like The Essential Films on Facebook. Follow at Essential Films on Twitter. And please like, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And please listen to our other show, Force Perspective, at, on iTunes at uh, YouTube.com. I'm sorry, not iTunes. On YouTube at YouTube.com slash Adolfo J. Acosta. Mark, take it away from there. 
Yes. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at SportsSky515. Um, and Force Perspective Twitter is at FP Movie Podcast. Uh, last episode we did, I believe, was the uh, the one we did Venom and Halloween, yes. uh, which just went up recently. So definitely check that out. Um, next episode, we're going to dive into more some more of the recent stuff. Uh, like I, I, I think I told Adolfo off the air, I still have to see uh, Fantastic Beasts and Creed 2, which just came out recently. Um, I do have Boy Erase I want to talk about a little bit more on that show as well. Um, and, uh, I mean, what else has come out recently that I've seen? I'm, I'm sure I'm sure seeing stuff. It's just I, I see so much stuff now that I just I, I kind of push things out as I see. I mean, we things. haven't talked about A Star is Born yet. Um, there Start, was, that's right. There was Bohemian Rhapsody came out. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's the a one. lot there's a lot of stuff that's come out. That's the one. I think Bohemian Rhapsody was the last one I saw of the current stuff, other than Boy Erased. So uh, we definitely got to talk about that one. Uh, so that'll be the next episode, um, and, uh, and that's pretty much it. All right, folks. Uh, as I said, uh, we um, we did as actually Mark brought up. We reported this over Thanksgiving. Uh, week uh, as as it is right now is thanksgiving eve so by the time this drops thanksgiving will have come and gone so we hope you enjoyed your thanksgiving and uh ate plenty of turkey or uh tofurkey however you'd like it whatever you'd like to celebrate <laughs> uh but uh until next time uh when we watch white christmas uh this has been the essential films <laughs>